One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. BT Sport Pods. Hi. Welcome to a new season and a new, hopefully improved, podcast. Michael Calvin's Football People builds on the strengths of the old Football Writers podcast. We've still got the best writers addressing the biggest issues. I'm joined today by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist, and Miguel Delaney, Chief Football Writer of The Independent. This season there's an added bonus, an in-depth conversation with a leading member of the football community. That could be a manager, coach, player, support staff member, club owner, scout or agent. This week's guest could not be better timed. Emma Hayes is an emotionally intelligent, tactically astute, socially aware coach, a serial winner and a trailblazer for the women's game. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I did. So, without further ado, let's get into the new Premier League season. A new season, Paul, but in many ways, an old story. It is. We've had this sort of mad chariot race, haven't we, for several seasons now between Manchester City and Liverpool, two exceptional teams separated by the odd point here and there at the end of these campaigns. And I think if you're a neutral, you'll be excited again to see how those teams are going to develop. Big questions on either side. One is, what can Liverpool do to close that tiny gap? Is there anything different they can bring to the show to peg Man City back? And the big question with Man City is, will Haaland adapt to City or will City adapt to Haaland? And will his arrival change them in a way that's beneficial or potentially harmful. Yeah. And as a rule, because we you know, try and be a bit grown up in the conversation sometimes, we try not to dwell on the lunacy of instant impressions. Now, since they're out there, you know, after the community shield, for goodness sake, realistically, Migs, how long do you think Darwin, Nunes and Erling Haaland have to make their mark? Oh, It's funny. I, I think it's basically... A game or two. While I was away, I found myself watching an interview between uh, Ian Wright and Dennis Burkamp, which is really good in the, in the way Wright does them. And Burkamp was reflecting on how he didn't score a goal for Arsenal for almost, it was almost two months into his initial. And obviously, Burkamp has become one of the Arsenal's greatest players. And I do remember the furore around that when he, when he didn't score against Hartlepool, when headline was Hartlepool. I mean, when you think that, and how it's accelerated now by social media, the immediate responses to what happened. On Sunday, you really have to. I mean, the, the the old thing. I mean, Wenger's old principle used to be that it takes six months for any player coming to England to adapt. Well, that's just not acceptable anymore. But I think there could be an adaptation period. Haaland has to. I mean, he's only twenty-two. There's already a few murmurs that Guardiola wants to evolve him as a player, make him press more. He, so he's got to adapt to a Guardiola as a manager, but also adapt to the Premier League as a competition. And none of this is to write off. Haaland's obvious quality because there's clearly so much talent there. But, I mean, there is one illustration of really how good he is, or maybe I suppose how tactically intelligent he is, is how quickly he adapts. Because, I mean, I remember at one point last season talking to one of the big six Premier League managers and they were talking about how it's got to the point with both the Dutch League and the German League where they're actually quite... It's very difficult to read the exact quality of a player because there's so there's, there's so much variety and volatility in terms of performance in, in the league, particularly in Germany, where there's a lot of high pressing and a lot of youth. 
which means there's, an, there's very little baseline. And I suppose that, that, that could be almost illustrated in Chelsea's two recent signings, Timo Werner and Kai Havertz. There's a lot of high lines in Germany. Manchester City don't face the same thing so, so often. So there is going to be an adaptation period. But on top of that, a lot of pressure, which could feed into it. That said, and uh, sorry to go on, I, I mean, for all we're talking about quick impressions, this season is really going to be decided, I think, by something that we've never had before and something that's, that's going to distort the Premier League to a greater level than before, which is a Winter World Cup, because it's going to mean a phony war for the first few months, a recovery period afterwards, and those players who aren't at the World Cup could have a distinct advantage. And who's one of them? Erling Haaland. Yeah. And Mo Salah, Paul, as well, won't be there, courtesy of his former Liverpool teammate, Sadio Mane. How do you feel Jurgen Klopp will uh, approach this period of probably pretty brief transition in their attacking options? I think he'll need to get on with it fast. He'll need to go early, really, on Man City and try and press home any advantage he can find and not, you know, wait until later in the season because he knows Manchester City are only going to get stronger as Haaland integrates himself. He's got two players to... I mean, I wouldn't call Diaz a new signing. Obviously, he signed in January, so he's pretty well integrated already. But the, the Nunes thing is a big change for them. Losing Sane is a big change for them. But I think there was a bit of kidology involved in him saying that we're going to be slow starters. It's, we're, the team's not quite ready. I don't think he's going to let them amble into this campaign. I think he's going to send them out there to try and hit Man City early on and, and, and get the whole momentum and confidence of the squad up so they can finally break this pattern of being close, but not close enough to City at the end of the season. What about, you know, we analyse, you know, technically, but what about the intangible strengths of a team, Migs? I'm thinking in terms here of almost unity. You know, I look at Liverpool and I look at Jordan Henderson, Milner. They are almost the glue guys of that team, aren't they? How important will the human factor be in this season, do you think? I think absolutely huge, given so much of it's going to be about psychological and physical adaptation to these huge ructions. But also, if you, kind of, if you stand back a bit, and, and, and Paul's absolutely right in terms of the tiny gap, but I think what's interesting in terms of what's coincided with this, the huge rupture of this season is also what's happening with these two teams in that after half a decade where the two of them have dominated the Premier League, you know, pushing the outer limits of possibilities in terms of point returns, they've both probably undergone their maybe their biggest team changes in that period, in this specific year ahead of this World Cup, whereas Guardiola, he's um, putting in place an overhaul he's really wanted for about two seasons now. Raheem Sterling's already gone. More players are available for transfer. And even the very signing of Haaland indicates they're going to change approach. And Alvarez will be more used a lot more than people think as well. And then, of course, with Klopp, he's changed that front three. Now, of course, Firmino had been kind of in and out for some time. But the very fact one of them is gone now it does change that chemistry, which, as you say, is why the presence of figures like Henderson and Milner is so important. And, and I suppose, again, to go back to something from the kind of the 90s, 2000s there, Ferguson's old dictum was always that a cycle of a team only lasts three or four years before it goes stale. So you have to change something about it and usually, usually make two or three changes. But throughout that, throughout all those team cycles Ferguson had, he, he, he had these totems in the team who were, who were ever-present. Henderson and Milner are certainly that for Klopp. Yeah, we do know, Paul, don't we, that, that football is a, well, what have you done for me lately type of business. I suppose you only have to look at Raheem Sterling pitching up at Chelsea to prove that point. Speaking of Chelsea, I suppose we have to have this perennial reminder not to judge teams or clubs before the window closes. But Chelsea seem to be the most vulnerable of the usual suspects, don't they? They do. I, we, we don't know yet whether this change of ownership will give the uh, the club a sense of renewal or whether there'll be a feeling that, that you know the glory days are over because the new owners aren't can't possibly invest on the level that Abramovich did but the early signs are that they're trying to dispel that notion straight away by buying well and buying very high profile players and in some cases maybe 
paying over the odds. Now, if they do pay £50 million for Mark Cucurella, that's something that Manchester City weren't willing to do or aren't willing to do. So that suggests that Chelsea are in the, is in the business of making statements as much as anything. I mean, Raheem Sterling was a fabulous signing, particularly at that price. Uh, that's really the signing of the summer, pound for pound. Koulibaly from Napoli, again, they absolutely needed to replace Rudiger at the back. Cucurello, as I said, they're potentially splashing out on him. And so there is intent. There is the, the desire by the new owners to say, look, we're not going to settle for fourth. You know, we're, we're going to be back in the title race. Uh, not many people think they will trouble City and Liverpool in the first two positions, but at least they've made the right start diplomatically and financially. What you know, you've just come back from Spain, Migs. What do you make of this courtship dance Chelsea have got with Barcelona? You know, we'll give you Aspilicueta and Moreno, we'll take Frankie De Jong off your hands. By the way, on that, you've got to praise him for resisting all this bullying. If if someone owed me seventeen million pounds, I wouldn't move, would you? Oh yeah, totally. I think you completely understand his obstinacy and it does seem very you know in those situations usually you would only think there's one outcome but with this it's really hard to read just because I think he's been so impressively you know standing up for himself in terms of the courtship dance it has indeed been a courtship dance but also one with a bit of um a a, a bit of love hate and a bit of chasing given that while while there is all all this potential business between the clubs there's also the fact that uh Barca in a way that no one would have expected a few months ago, have gazumped Chelsea for a few deals. And it's almost, I mean, it's almost a surprise they haven't come in for Cucurella, uh, <laughs> given the way the summer has gone. How have they I mean, afford it? They've got a forest of magic money trees there, haven't they? Well, I mean, ultimately, it's by moving debt around. I mean, the thing is, the, the, the finances add up. It's just about what those calculations are really based on a huge gamble, which is essentially that this team straight away will have instant success and restore Barca to the kind of the billion euro income team, the glamour team that they were before COVID hit. I mean, and at that point, the debt was already building up. I mean, and it is remarkable because, okay, they have signed well. Xavi has shown promise, but you're still ultimately basing it on the kind of capriciousness of football. Xavi mightn't be Pep Guardiola, Lewandowski might get injured. If, if one of those things happens, then suddenly it, there's a bit more doubt about this grand plan. But I suppose it's, it's, it's one, I mean, on the other side, given there's been so much uncertainty about Chelsea, they suddenly look so much more sustainable for all they've been kind of beaten to players by Barcelona and some of the doubt around around the club. Yeah. Are, we, are we, do you think, Paul, entering a new age of almost you know, financial brutality? You know, Thomas Tuchel is obviously under pressure. Chelsea are pressurising Leicester for Wes Fofana. You know, he's, he's made the modern gesture of taking all reference to Leicester off his social media accounts. What is the impact of a club like... And would it be symbolic if, say, for instance, Leicester implode this season? Yes. We all know, because we take the trouble to look at the finances that the the kind of smoke and mirrors of of global football wealth sometimes isn't what it seems at Barcelona for example Miguel's just talked about them they they're selling their future income to pay the current bills that's their that's their tactic Chelsea actually have just taken a a, a large a loan effectively to boost the finances of the club one or two fans were worried about that Leicester City have been brilliant at scouting developing maturing winning trophies you know, a kind of beacon club in many ways for the Premier League. Haven't bought any players this season, so it's not this summer. It's natural to think, is that a financial issue or is it a, a scouting contracts issue? It's it's wise to be sceptical about all football clubs, that's what I would say, and to look at what they're actually doing and why, rather than just to read, to look at the glamour and just assume everything is is healthy in the garden. Certainly Leicester fans will be will be looking at their club and wondering whether there's there's an underlying trend that they should be worried about. Yeah. But fans don't they they mainline optimism and adrenaline, don't they, Migs? So if you look at Spurs fans, for instance, you know, this time last year, you know, they were wanting to hide in a darkened room. Whereas now, you know, it's it's all about in Conte we trust, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I know I mean Given the potential disruptions of the season, and given that Conte has basically 
I would almost call it a classic Jose Mourinho summer when Mourinho was at the top of his game. Not that Conte would appreciate the uh, the comparison, given the uh, <laughs> given there's not exactly much love between the two men. But you know, he, he he's gone into the summer. He knew exactly what he wanted, and uh, at least in the first eleven, he's kind of he, he's forensically improved every area of the team. I think Perisic in particular is an inspired signing. So is with Charleston, and it it would take a fair bit, but. If a, certain, if a few things fall the right way, I actually think Spurs could have an outside chance of a, of a title challenge. And, and, and so much of that is predicated on Conte. And as you say, just the, the shift that's happened at Spurs. I mean, one argument for that could be, especially in the, with, the, with the comparison with Leicester, that it, it is a credit to Daniel Levy's macro stance in the club, that he has kept them there or thereabouts around the Champions League places for so long when it would have easily have been for the Ray. Of course, they have the advantage of being in London, which Leicester don't. I, 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 there is a little bit of a kind of a morality tale for the Premier League, I think, in, in that as well. In that just, with Leicester, for so long, they're the model club. And it's almost now as if, and also one of the great stories, but it's almost now as if that title was ahead of schedule. And just at the point where they actually impressively built that title and it used it to her advantage... Because of the modern economics of the Premier League, they were always denied a Champions League place, even though they went so close twice. And that, that has played its part in not being able to kick on. And there is an element to that. that it, it's, a bit, it's a bit sad. And now, of course, this summer, we, we might have a bit of a touchstone moment if indeed Newcastle do finally buy Madison from Leicester because of everything that represents. Although, I mean, to, to return to your question, suddenly there's a bit of interest from Spurs there as well. So we might have it might be one of those little transfer sagas that actually says a bit more about uh, the order right now. Mm. Talking of the order of things, Paul, where do you think Arsenal stand in it? It's a good question because when I was looking through everybody's predictions for the Premier League season, almost nobody tips Arsenal to finish fourth. Everybody's currently um, full of this idea, understandably, that, that Tottenham have, have strengthened so well and that Conte seems happy there and is a brilliant coach, which he is, that that's going to make all the difference. And Tottenham are nailed on for fourth. But actually, when you look at the business Arsenal have done, I mean, Jesus and Zinchenko are two very handy cast-offs, really. Excellent signings. Fabio Vieira comes in as a potential playmaker, a young Portuguese player, under-21 European Championship player of the tournament. I don't think he'll duplicate Emil Smith-Rowe because he tends to start wider than, than Smith-Rowe would. Uh, Smith-Rowe can play through the middle, so they might work well together. And I just think if yeah, if he, if Arteta can solve this problem, Arsenal have of being a streaky team who are good for four day, uh, games and then mediocre for three or four, if he can solve that problem, they've got a major chance of finishing fourth. But they're going to have to be less flaky and all these new players they have signed are going to have to be the players we think they are and really take Arsenal on to the next level. But I suppose what I'm saying is they may give Spurs more of a race for their money for fourth place than we might assume. Mm. I, I, just actually on, on that, Paul, uh, my, my prediction is slightly different. Ah. Uh, I haven't indeed gone for Arsenal fourth, but Spurs for third. <laughs> uh. <laughs> where, where have you got Chelsea? I think fifth. I must say, I do think it's going to be I think it's going to be a battle between United, Chelsea, and Arsenal for that for that top four place. But uh, Arsenal, if, if, if as you say, it does feel like. I mean, and sometimes this happens with coaches, especially after. I know there's been debate about Arteta, but after two seasons and when he finally gets in the players he wants, something does click and they kind of go on to as if kind of the squad understands what he wants on a deeper level. Now, I suppose there'll be a lot of commentary on that given some of the clips that have come out from the new documentary. Well, documentaries are maybe a little bit of a stretch for, the, for, the, for those all or nothing. Yeah, merchandising catalogue. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, but, I, but I do, and just from talking to people around Arsenal, one of the comments that you keep hearing is that they knew Gabriel Jesus was good, but didn't realise he was actually this good. And I think there could be an element there that, as if he's a player kind of who's released from mm. what he was at Manchester City, which was a very serviceable option. But not we weren't seeing the true Gabriel Jesus because he was ne- he was never kind of a, the number nine in the way he would have idealised, and now we're seeing that at Arsenal, and we could see him on a new level, and maybe Arsenal on a new level. Mm. What about Manchester United, Paul? You know there are very very few signs that the circus has left town, aren't there? Yes, 
and I really feel very strongly that they're making the same mistake with Cristiano Ronaldo that they made with Paul Pogba. Uh, they kept Paul Pogba at the club against his wishes year after year after year when if they'd acted like the big club they're meant to be, they'd have, they'd have let him go and got rid of him. And I, they should be saying to Ronaldo, look, nobody is going to be at this club if they don't want to be here. And he clearly doesn't want to be there because he sent his agent in to tell them and went with him as well. He, he, you know, he, he's not, he's not, there's no mixed messages here. Ronaldo does not want to be there. Therefore, Manchester United should act like a big club, get him out. And I think the other players, the players who were trying to come through would be relieved because his goals are very valuable, but it, the whole thing casts a shadow. The whole team revolves around him too much. And I'm really surprised that Eric Ten Hag has got drawn into this when he could have made a name for himself early on if he wants to be seen as a decisive manager by saying, the guy doesn't want to be here, get him out. Mm. This is a final point for this you know, first half of the episode, Migs. Newcastle, you mentioned them in passing there. What's the realistic limit of their ambition this season? I suppose if... Well, I was meant to say, if one of the big six had a, bit, had a, a bad season... There is an outside chance, the top six, provided they kind of make another signing or two. But, again, last season was a bit of an illustration there. And at United, probably their most miserable season in decades, and yet still managed to squeeze in. So I think probably for the moment, it's almost Newcastle is to take Leicester City's place or West Ham's place as that team just bubbling outside. Obviously, with a lot of debate and controversy around that, given their owner, something we can't overlook. But even though obviously that's been another angle of the summer, given that Newcastle have actually been relatively frugal, I think because they're aware that everyone sees them coming and w- once it's Newcastle in, they'll bump up prices. While at the same time, the even more controversial Live Golf are, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's ultimately the same ownership, are <laughs> throwing out, what, what was the latest figure? 800 million euro offer for Tiger Woods. Mm. No, they don't have financial fair play there. But it, but it, 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 I suppose, just illustrates some of the dynamic and also reminds us about what what the club is. But but certainly in terms of kind of the football operation, the, the, the one thing I would say there is um, they've got the benefit of a full summer under Eddie Howe and and that coaching, which which will have some effect in itself. Yeah, when we look at the broader aspects of of Newcastle's ownership, and, and you're right to link that in with the the LRV golf migs. It's very hard to sustain innocence. Now, that innocence was actually replenished, if you like, on Sunday at Wembley when England's women won the European Championships. Now, Emma Hayes, I've been speaking to her, she's FIFA's World Coach of the Year. Her Chelsea teams consistently set new standards. She'd had about four hours sleep when we caught up in the aftermath of that historic win at Wembley. Welcome, Emma. I'm going to get into the big picture stuff a little later, but I first really wanted to reflect on the personal nature of that victory. And by that, I mean... It was really personalised. It was. It really struck me that, you know, a lot of women were relating it to the their experiences in childhood, not being able to play the game. You know, some even posted photographs of their great grandma who was playing the game before the FA got involved in 1921. So I'm not asking you this first question as a football person or the World Coach of the Year. I'm asking you this as the little girl who grew up on the estate, what would she have made of Sunday night? Listen, you don't even have to ask me to tune in to the little girl at the council estate because that was all I felt anyway. You know, nothing about yesterday smacked of being a coach or a developer of any of those players, though I'm, of course, incredibly proud of that. All I kept thinking was I couldn't dream of that. It was unimaginable as an eight or a nine or a 10 year old. In fact, I didn't think it was remotely possible. So my dreams were merely, how could I take part in the men's cup final or the world cup final and everything from the imagery to what I was reading to what we were talking about as a child was only men. So 
to stand front and centre with almost 90,000 people, passionate football fans, some that may or may not have been at the Euros last year. And as soon as the final whistle went, I could just feel tears running down my eyes because I just thought of almost everything my whole life. I thought about, I cannot get that football pitch out of my head as a child. I cannot, it was so central to my life that I just keep thinking, oh my goodness, my niece Isabella, age nine, is going to go to her camp and she's going to be lining up to be Millie Bright or whomever or Chloe Kelly. And that is naturally going to provoke a lot of emotion for a lot of people because that's, I guess, what you work for when no one else was looking mm. and no one else cared. But, you know, there were so many relatable stories there. And, you know, one, in obviously, in your orbit is that of Fran Kirby. I remember you speaking to me about three months ago towards the end of the last season when you were basically saying, well, we're trying to win these games for her. Again, you're looking at her as her coach but also her friend and perhaps her mentor. Again, what's that feel like to see her, after everything she's been through, win that medal? I was pitch side at the end of the game and I got sent a video of a hug between myself, Millie, Jess, Fran, and then a separate moment I had with Fran. And I can only relate it to being a parent and the pride that you get in those that you've developed. And I know what she's gone through. I know how hard she's worked to get there. And winning that is a dream come true, an absolute dream come true for her. So to experience someone living their dream is so, so powerful. And to do that from afar, even though I've coached these players on a club level, was such a profound moment. And you know, you know what I found so enjoyable yesterday was that I'm a coach of a team in the league and there's rivalries. None of that existed this entire tournament. It was they are players of England and we want them all to do well for England. And when people ask about my pride for Fran or Millie or Jess or Beth, I say, I'm just proud of all of them. Mm. I'm as proud of Chloe Kelly as I am Mary Earps. It doesn't matter if they play for Man United or Man City, they're amazing. And I think that that coming together, if I'm honest with you, I mean, listen, we could have a whole conversation about Serena and what she's done and how amazing she is. But I think our men's team deserve a lot of credit. I really do. I think they deserve a lot of credit of what a, an England team can look like. I think they've led the way. And we, and we always like to batter or compare or so many times I hear, oh, the men have fallen at the final hurdle. No comparison. I think England's national teams are in a completely different era. Mm. And sitting there with Mason Mount and Phil Foden, I was sat next to them. They were overwhelmed with emotion and joy for those players. Mm. And I believe they have a lot of credit too for showing what it's like to play for an England team. Yeah. Is that, you know, the, the common denominator between those teams, one, the, the emotional maturity of the management, but secondly, you know, that, I suppose, strategic humility if you like you know the, the the England men's team opened themselves up and one of the great things about the women's team was that they were so authentic or are so authentic but there are I think specifics now again I want to talk about another of your mentors actually Anson Dorrance who for listeners who don't know him is 71 he's the head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels now he developed Serena Wegman Lucy Bronze, Alessia Russo. Now, he speaks about moral fibre being really important. Is all that emotional openness and natural humility the key to this success of this team? One of them is, and having been influenced by Anson myself, I'm good friends with Anson, that along with being hugely competitive, that's something he values immensely. You know, he's... He's created an environment where daily practice must involve competition and winning and that it's driven towards that. And 
he's quite an open book about it as well. I feel, I've always one of the things I've always found so fascinating about Anson is he'll give you a manual of how his team plays and how we'll beat you. And he'll still say to you, but I'll beat you anyway. <laughs> and if you think about, you know, the people you've mentioned, and I, and I, I will put myself in that because Anson's had a big role to play in my career too. You've got unbelievably brilliant women in themselves in Serena, Lucy, you know, Alessia as a younger player coming through. But I can totally see how Anson has influenced them to have the moral fibre you speak about, but also just, you know, winning is absolutely everything. And I, and I kept saying it throughout this tournament, I'm totally all for the legacy building and everything that comes with it. But this is about winning. Mm. Like there's been enough investment. There's been enough nearlies in this team. I think anything but a win personally, I think would have been a failure. Mm. Well, it's like, isn't it, Emma? Look, you know, I put out a tweet yesterday before the game. Win and the rest takes care of itself, doesn't it? Oh, a thousand percent. And I've seen it myself with my own team and the build of a team or something around the team as a result of the win. So if I think back to 2015 winning the first cup final and then what the, the investments then start to look to, and I don't always mean financial, people always assume you mean that, but you think that waking up today, whether it's the government who's going to face pressure through legislation to the governing bodies that are going to face pressure for better prize money, whether it's... UK Sports, Sport England, whomever to provide better access, et cetera, et cetera. The winning, I think, has a much more powerful impact than just, hey, they were amazing, but we didn't quite get there. Because winning comes, winning brings its pressures in different ways, but I think it brings its power. And I think that's, I, I, I always try to fast forward in my head when I look back in five years' time, what will the real impact of this team be beyond just winning? And f again, I think, realistically, I think it will just be a continuation of what's happened before. But like Mark Bullingham said today, it's just going to be turbocharged. Hmm. That's exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be a turbocharge, almost like Millennium Falcon speed, to get us to the next point. Does the women's game need to aspire to being more than just a diluted version of the men's game? Now, I'm thinking in broad terms here, Emma. You know, the FA, to be fair to them, have done a fantastic job, top-down investment in the elite game. You know, they do this, you know, the Wildcats program for the kids between age of 5 and 11. But is it time for them, maybe, to accept their responsibilities in the grassroots and to develop a new type of professional structure. Now, I'm not saying the Premier League should um, operate it. What I'm saying yeah. is that there are so... What has struck me around you know, things like women in football, there are so many fresh, innovative figures coming into the women's game, female figures largely. Why don't you just go out and create your own entity? Well, whatever they consider, what is clear is it has to leave the FA at the professional level anyway. They don't have the experience. They don't have what is needed for the next steps, whether that's commercially, whether that's with broadcasting, whether that's with just competition in general. You know, they're always going to have a vested interest. They say the vested interest is in the game. Yes, it is, but it's also in England, in just Team England. But we have to think bigger than that. And I know that, obviously, there's serious conversations around in which direction is it going to go? Will it be Premier League? Will it be a separate entity? What is certain that that is that that needs to be accelerated? To be honest, I felt we should be there already. I was disappointed that we weren't there at least maybe to start this season's campaign under a new entity. I personally don't see the delay, the reason for the delay. However, I think if the Premier League are genuinely serious about 
women's football, I'm not sure they are, then it's time to stake a claim to that and put your money, you know, where it needs to be or create an independent body, as you just spoke about, that would ideally from this time next year be taking the women's professional game on. And then perhaps the FA focuses on some of the grassroots effort, but I think it has to leave the FA. Yeah, because if you think about the Premier League, you know, or actually looking back at Sunday's final, and this is loads of people remarked on it, was that just the mood of it, the spirit of it, when you see the the sourness of the men's Euros final, and you know, without being you know, patronising, almost the innocence of, of of Sunday, why do you need to go back to a situation where, okay, the Premier League for all its terrific marketing and everything else, will try and recreate a women's league, a women's super league, or whatever you want to call it, in its own image? Yeah, no question. I, I think there's that, but I think there has to be an openness that maybe there could be a body within that because they've got the expertise. And I'm a big fan of when everybody questioned, you know, should women's teams come under the umbrella of men's teams? There's a lot of people saying, you know, if, if clubs get relegated, does that put a women's team at risk? Look, there is a risk reward type situation to any of that. But what I feel are the benefits of, say, you know, a women's team joining a men's club from the Premier League is just all of that soft knowledge. You know, what you learn from the board end, the business end, the corporate end, the marketing end, the ticketing end is so exponential it really it's really accelerated the growth because the knowledge you take from that has been so overwhelming my fear with purely an independent body is do they have the experience do they really really know what the premier league know to grow a league but at the same time i'd understand the apprehensions i think if there were to be like in an ideal world it would be knowledge from the Premier League with some degree of independent regulation. I think those two things, because what the Premier League know and have been able to do over the years ahead of La Liga and Serie A and the Bundesliga, I think there's a lot to learn from them. What more do you think the parent clubs can do, Emma? You know, okay, with Chelsea, you know, you're in a, a very good position. You know, they espouse the one club policy as you know, do the Arsenal's and Manchester City and, and latterly Man United. Do you want to see more WSL games at what I would call host stadia? You know, you're starting your season against West Ham at Stamford Bridge. Should that now be almost the norm rather than the exception? I don't know the answer to that, if I'm honest, because I still think perhaps we should go logically from last year where there might have been a few appearances to then making it a few more this year to then really seeing what we sustain week in week out at our own stadiums to then determine what those next steps are because many teams up and down the country are not getting 3,000 people so you can totally understand from a business perspective Open a football stadium probably costs a minimum of a hundred grand a game in terms of what it would need to staff that. So to invest in that and still put 5,000 people in it makes you wonder, well, what would be the point of that? The second will be, well, if we fill it, we've got to give tickets away. And then you say, well, what would be the point of that either? I think for me, the intriguing thing will be if I compare playing at Stamford Bridge at the beginning of this season and to, I think it was two years ago, we had our opening league fixture, is I want to know how many are going to be paid attendance as opposed to 25,000 giveaways. That is the marker of how much progress we've made. And then it will be, well, how many are coming to the second game at Kings Meadow? We sold out. And if we're close to sell out, 
well, how quickly as clubs are we having conversations with our stakeholders about the expansions of our own stadia? And if not expansion of our own stadia, a plan for future stadia, whether that be into the men's ground or our own ground with, you know what I mean? But I think mm. we're, I don't think we're at the beginning parts of those conversations. I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we have to prepare for the next, for not just next year, the year after and the years beyond. Mm. You've talked a, a lot about the need, quite understandably, to almost end this divided conversation. You know, it's a game of football, whether it's male or female. But what about coaching standards and coaching almost philosophies and, and habits? Why do you think female coaches should be made to feel that they have to work in the men's game to be almost legitimised? You know, you turned down a football league club this summer. Does that mean the first person to make that leap, and someone will at some stage, will come under a lot of pressure? You know what? It is, it's the question I expect every interview. I mean, listen, it is. I mean, and sometimes I think... I just wish we could spend the time on the group of players that I've got and the environment that I'm working in because you wouldn't, for the same end, ask a male coach in the men's game the same questions about them going into the women's game. The constant comparisons between, oh, well, they certainly can't enter at this level because they clearly can't cope with playing in front of crowds or playing in in front of, you know, um, whatever it might be. Like, there are constant barriers put in front of why we can't do it. And I ask myself that same question all the time. Like, where does that come from? Where does that inherent systemic bias come from? And then I just revert to, well, everyone's grown up watching the game, if they did watch it on television, it was just men, played by men, managed by men, refed by men, commentated by men, presented by men, written by men. Where, where do we go? The list is endless. And now all of a sudden, the concept of an alien, i.e. a woman, stepping into that, and it's not even just a woman, I mean, diversity in general, stepping into that is, seems to be so threatening in a way that I don't necessarily see it being the case in other professions, always makes me wonder, wow, they won't talk about banking in the same way. You know, we won't talk about very sort of traditional male jobs in the same way they do football. Football for me seems to be the one space left on, on earth that, a hardcore group are fighting so hard to make sure the status quo remains. And that, unfortunately, won't change overnight. There's an ebbing away of little things. So if someone says, well, this manager X, whomever that might be, can't manage in the Premier League because they've never managed in front of crowds on a regular basis. Well, what about Serena Viegman? You think she can manage in front of a crowd? Bear in mind, you know, most of the time, most of us have male assistants or male doctors or male physios or whatever we might have. Managing men is what we do anyway, day in, day out. But again, there seems to be this like divide that managing male footballers versus managing just males is something distinctly different. And I've, I think privately, I've often wondered why that is. And then I just accept that that's the way it's always been. And it's going to take a little bit of time for that narrative to change. And perhaps a manager going in and being successful in that, though, to be honest with you, I think it's going to be incredibly challenging for any woman to go and do it in the first instance, because the level of scrutiny and criticism they're going to face on the first goal conceded, let alone the first loss, I think is, um, you know, something I guess that person is going to have to accept. But I know for me, I accept the questions when they come. I just always prefer to talk about the very thing that I'm working on every day. Mm. In that, what you're working on, 
the one thing it strikes me is you've worked in an environment, professional environment, where you've been isolated in many ways because, you know, you've spoken in the past to me about being the only only female on a coaching course. There's this sort of boys club that's going on. You know, a lot of people were talking in, in, in the aftermath of Wembley about, yeah, everything's going to change. The game is going to change. But as you say, there are so many examples of hidebound tradition. Is it going to change? Yeah. Listen, I spoke to a group of 13-year-olds this morning. They play for Sutton United. Great girls. They were telling me about school. And I said, how is it playing football in the playground? They're like, the boys won't really let us play or... They tell us the girls are not very good. The girls' teams are not very good, et cetera, et cetera. And this is why I go back to the winning piece. Can you imagine how powerful their next school playground football match is going to be for them? <laughs> because at the end of the day, that same boy was probably sat at home cheering for it much in the same way they were and enjoyed it. Just unfortunately a face with those same negative I can't say it's just biases and stereotypes around our game, but I think what was so great, it was about football and it was about England and it was about winning. It weren't about women and men. And yes, the women's team did it before the men's team. And but who cares? England won. The game won. And I think that it's important to keep talking like that rather than the divisive language that comes with it because I think this tipping point if we are when we fast forward five years ahead will show that as I said at the very beginning we don't go from zero to a thousand in five years time the game will be five years on but because of the winning I believe it would have it will accelerate much quicker and I don't know what it looks like. I, I hope that we're playing in the men's stadiums every week and we're selling out. Realistically, do I think that will be the case in five years? I don't think so. But I think we're moving in the right direction. Do I think women's players are going to be paid at the same end of the scale of male players? No, I don't think so. Because... It's a bit like when people say to me, well, you we can't invest in women's foot. We don't, you know, don't make any money. And it, it took me a long time to actually realise, well, hang on a minute. We were banned. We were banned for a long time. We haven't had the time the men's game has to grow, whatever that is in and around it. So unfortunately, there is going to have to be a investment with a minimal return for a period of time. And I think yesterday was a demonstration that women's football can make money on and off the pitch. And that if you don't invest in it, you're going to be left behind. Now, that together, I think will be extremely powerful for the sport going forward. And as a final question, do the girls themselves and the coaches and people like yourself realise how your lives are going to change? You know, you're a prominent figure. But people are going to even react to you differently, aren't they? Look, I feel, I know for me, I felt a little bit like me and my team, we've had a huge success the last two, three years. I, I personally, I felt like well, it was way off my shoulders. That's how I felt. I was like, oh, this is great. Because ultimately, everyone's just sharing the load. Do I think ever since the broadcasting deal last summer, our lives have been changing? Yes. I think ever since we've been more televised, we've been more recognised, more scrutinised. Again, I think that will just incrementally grow. And I think that will bring some humongous challenges, especially for the players on the back of this. Because, like you said, that sort of authentic, carefree approach to what they do with now daily reporting of everything from their personal lives to their financial lives, I think will take its toll on some of them. And they might not be prepared for what 
the men have had to endure for such a long time. And that will come with its challenges. And I do believe the prep work has been done in the background, at, at least at, for the top players. I think the trickle down of that will be that the women's game are going to have to accept some of the negativity that's going to follow them with every decision they make. And that's what our roles are going to be as coaches, the guidance, the, the support, but guidance in the right directions when you see it slipping in another direction. Because, listen, this make no mistakes. This make no bones about it. There will be uh, some within that that it's going to affect them massively, both positively and negatively. So you got your work cut out then? Yeah, I think, again, it's the challenge of coaching and having the right support around the team and the players, the, the right emotional and social care around them because I don't know yet if they fully understand what they've done and if they fully understand how their lives are going to change. You say mine's going to change. I don't think my life's going to change drastically because I've been gradually building towards this point and I'm 45 years of age. A little bit different to a 21-year-old who's going from, you know, finishing full-time education two years ago to being a pro, first-time pro a year ago to now being, you know, on the front pages of or back pages of the Daily Mail for the right and maybe even sometime the wrong reasons. Well, um, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it as always. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Well, Emma is a very impressive individual. She actually knows our game quite well as well. That warning at the end, Paul, that their lives will change, that's pretty prescient, isn't it? Yes, it is. Happens to all tournament-winning teams happens to Ashes cricket winning teams and it certainly will happen to the women who won the European Championship at Wembley on Sunday. Uh, they, they will, a new world is awaiting them, their lives have changed. Do you remember Bobby Charlton saying to Jack Charlton in 1966, our lives will never be the same again? Well, it's true of uh, this England women's team as well and, and I hope and actually I expect that there are people who are helping them with that. I don't just mean agents, I mean people at the FA and people who've been through this before. And I think it was important that Emma Hayes made that point because nobody's better qualified than her to um, to sort of play that elder stateswoman role for them. I mean, actually this morning, Mike, there's a little skirmish around a, a, a new beer that's been named after Beth Mead. And there's a little uh, scuffle on Twitter about whether she should be paid for that or not. And I thought, here we go, it's it started, you know. These players are gonna be billboard stars now, household names, there'll be commercial pressure, there'll be pressure on their time. And the biggest thing they have to guard against is this feeling that they've made it, that their careers are already set in stone. They've got to put this behind them and go again and continue to be great players. Mm. I suppose in that sense, it's good that they've got a World Cup to, to concentrate quite quickly on, isn't it? What did you make of her, Migs? I thought it was very interesting that she chose to make a point of praising the, the England men's team. Yeah, totally. Especially because in the way that happens in these sort of situations, there, ha there has been actually a bit of a backlash against... Uh, because uh, Wigman's team won... There's been a little bit of criticism for Southgate, a little bit of kind of comparison between the two, when, when obviously, as Hayes so astutely put it, I mean, both kind of stand on their own two feet and are, are in different ways. I think that, that's one of the things that really stood out about the interview, and it's, of course, a credit to the interviewer as well. Thank you, but, uh, but, uh <laughs> Checks in uh, the post, as usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, Hayes... Like, there's been so many different strands and themes, I think, that have spilled out from Sunday evening, and really from the whole tournament as well. And I think what the interview did and what Hayes did so well was kind of so expertly contextualise and articulate some of those key things. And actually, one of the most interesting things I found about it, as well as that point about Southgate, was also the, the women's game's place within the men's structure. Because I think she went against, and, and again, this this, this supposed it reflects some of, her, some of her arguments on Southgate as well, but it went against some of the received wisdom 
in the uh, in some of the discussion of the last few days, which is basically there are so many dysfunctional and structural problems with the men's game. The women's game almost serves as a blank slate to which we could create almost a perfect football. Of course, it's not a blank slate because it has existed with, with, with its own issues for so long and with some of that being influenced by the men's game. But I thought it was such an interesting point she made about actually it's about really drawing on so much experience and expertise. And again, you couldn't have someone, anyone better placed than that given the club she's been working within for so long now. Mm. One of the things that came across, I think, was was the authenticity of both Emma as an individual and the team as a collective, Paul. What are the lessons do you think we can draw from the way that someone like a coach like Emma Hayes attacks her job? Well, I just think she has everything, really. She is... It'd be nice to put her in a tradition of... I don't want to just claim her as an English coach. That would be a bit parochial. But it's great to know that there are people in the men's and women's game with that level of wisdom who have tactical mastery, great management skills in terms of their human touch, you know, their people skills, they're articulate, they're forward-looking. And Emma Hayes, in your interview, Mike, revealed this great sort of depth of wisdom about society as well. I mean, that point she made about, well, why should I... Why should women feel that they, they have to get into the men's game to be successful? Why would that be an elevation for me? You know, no one talks about a man would be lucky if he got a job coaching a woman's team, but it, it seems to work the other way, the other way around. So she's brilliant at pointing out prejudices and old ideas that need updating without sort of really taking people on. It's, it's just a very, very understated, clever way of, of, of um, expressing herself. And so... I think that uh, she is a she is a model really for any coach coming through. We've got an England team women's team that's definitely a model for young players for children, and I think Emma Hayes with Serena Regman, of course, who's unbeaten in European Championships and is and is is absolutely brilliant at getting teams over the line. She's done it twice now in successive championships. The women's game has two coaches there, two managers who absolutely set the standard for everybody else. Mm. Well, that's that's another kind of really relevant element, I think, from what, especially, and it, it was in Hayes' last few answers as well, or, or her her last few points, just about kind of what it means, especially you know, girls growing up who weren't able to play, and also, and and and, and this is we in these sort of situations, we often hear. Well, that's actually it's usually when things go wrong, we usually hear about players as role models, but in this, it's a, it's an entirely positive sense, and it also I think touches on the point about why we should want to get into the men's game in that. Because that would just mean that any achievement in women's football is still ultimately defined by what happens in men, where this is something in its own right. And it's all the more important, given that one of the greatest effects of this tournament is probably, we probably won't see it now, we'll see it in 20 years, because it will surely create an explosion of girls wanting to play football because they're seeing the people they're looking up to are no longer Mohamed Salah or anyone you want to pick out for men's football it's actually people from women's football and being proper icons out there yeah well i suppose to sum up emma is one of the most innovative insightful and intriguing coaches in the world game her gender frankly is an irrelevance i suppose if i've got one hope for the season it's that we really take coaching seriously The English game, in its widest sense, needs to nurture its best footballing brains. If you look at the women's game, Casey Stoney has impressed me hugely. Watch out also for Kelly Chambers in the WSL at Reading. In the men's game, in the EFL, likes of Liam Manning at MK Dons, Mike Beale at QPR, Kevin Betsy at Crawley. They've all got real potential. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this new podcast. I have to thank Paul, Miguel and, of course, Emma for their insight. And I have to thank you for listening. Please tell us what we're doing right and what we can improve. The best way to do that is by popping us a review on Apple. I promise we'll be listening. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.